and welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host. I'm the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. As usual, our podcast is split into three parts. Firstly, is a look at recent funds and investment trust news. Then, in the middle section, is a fund manager interview. And then we conclude with our fund spotlight feature. For the first part of the podcast, I'm joined by Tom Bailey, who is the ETF editor at Interactive Investor. Me and Tom are going to chat through a couple of news items. We're going to start off with data that shows that it's been a bumper first half of the year for investment trust fundraising. In fact, fundraising hit a record high for a six-month period. A total of $6.3 billion was raised, with the bulk of that coming from existing trusts through secondary fundraising, which accounted for $5.1 billion. The remaining $1.2 billion of fundraising was through successful new investment trust launches. This was the highest amount raised for IPOs for a half-year period since 2017. One trust, however, that failed to launch was Lion Trust ESG. Tom, you covered the announcement of the proposed launch and then the news at the back end of last week that Lion Trust had fallen short on its fundraising target. Could you run through the background? In May, Lion Trust announced it was planning to launch an investment trust, an ESG-focused investment trust. And so the asset manager was hoping to raise £150 million uh, from the IPO for this. Uh, however, it looked like the, the trust was going to fall, uh, fall short of, of the £100 million uh, minimum target. Um, so was, and last week they announced they're going to they can the IPO. Lion Trust has a big ESG team and, and a lot of ESG funds, although they're all open-ended. This would have been its first close-ended trust since uh, it, it stopped running investment trusts about 20 years ago. So the hope was to use the investment trust structure to put in place a more concentrated strategy of smaller cap stocks and, and less stocks uh, without having to worry about the liquidity concerns that comes with the kind of typical open-end structure. Lion Trust, as you mentioned, Tom, do have a, um, a strong environmental social governance ESG team. So some eyebrows have been raised that it didn't attract enough demand from investors. But a point that I would like to make is that for funds, there does seem to be an ESG fund being launched every single day. I am, of course, exaggerating a bit, but there has been scores of ESG funds launched or existing funds rebadged ESG over the past 18 months to two years. But for investment trusts, those trust launches with a sustainable or ethical tilt that have went on to IPO have been specialising on a certain part of the sustainable space, such as renewable energy. There appears to not be enough appetite for a mainstream sustainable investment trust that is investing in green shares that are listed on the FTSE All Share Index. But the more alternative sustainable trusts are proving very popular with investors. Yeah, there's also clearly demand out there for kind of environmentally focused uh, investments. Um, but I mean, everyone's kind of rushing to meet this demand in, in different ways. There's so many different ways uh, you know, to, to try and have these funds and different strategies to satisfy this this demand. So you know, there's obviously the normal ESG funds and trusts, uh, like the Lion Trust one was was supposed to be. And then there's the impact, impact investing funds, and then also there's all sorts of ESG screened index funds, and also then ETFs with thematic indices that track stuff like clean energy or solar energy. 
And, and then, but then also on top of that, every single fund now nearly claims to incorporate ESG principles into its stock collection process. So for an investor looking for for some sort of ethical, environmental, ESG, whatever you want to call it, approach to their investing, there's no there's no short shortage of options. Perhaps um, given all that background, there is a bit of investor fatigue um, setting in. And um, ESG funds have also seen their shorter term performance numbers um, sort of negatively impacted by the market rotation that's taken place since last November, um, which of course has resulted in value shares outperforming growth shares. Certain value shares, the likes of miners and oil companies, they're not going to be in most of these ESG portfolios. I think this could also perhaps be a factor behind investors not rushing to get their checkbooks out in the case of Lion Trust ESG. As if this rotation continues to play out, it will remain a headwind for ESG funds. We're now going to move on to the fund and investment trust winners and losers for the first half of 2021. It's been a real reversal in fortunes for energy-focused funds. Such funds were among the worst performers last year. Um, some posted declines of more than 30%. But in the first six months of 2021, um, Schroeder ISF Global Energy was the best performer, up over 40%, while Guinness Global Energy was in fair place, up uh, just over 35%. For investment trusts, it's been more of a mixed bag, but one common theme for both funds and investment trusts has been that smaller companies had a really good six-month period. Yeah, as you mentioned, energy funds did did really well, and that's because energy does well when the global economy is doing well, but also small companies do well when the global economy is is looking good. Um, so small cap funds and trusts have both both been in the top performers. So among among open energy funds, you had uh, Lion Trust UK Microcap. Aberforth UK smaller companies, Castlefield best sustainable UK smaller companies, and, and then also in addition, Leg Mason Royce US small cap opportunities was also present. And then on on trusts, there were uh, kind of three standout small cap small cap trusts that um, were in the top ten: uh, Shelverton Growth Trust, Shelverton UK Dividend Trust, and River and Mercantile UK Microcap. At the other end of the table, uh, gold funds were among the worst performers, while for investment trusts, some very Highly specialist strategies dominated the laggards, with two of the three worst performers being um, aircraft leasing vehicles. Please do check out ii.co.uk for our analysis of the winners and losers in the first half of 2021 and a breakdown of the top 10 performers for funds and trusts. The next part of the podcast, I'm joined by Nicholas Weinling, full manager of the JP Morgan Japanese Investment Trust. The trust aims to invest in the very best companies in Japan. So how do you find them? Well, the first thing and very important point is that me and the whole team at JP Morgan are based here in Japan, in Tokyo, all 25 of us. So, you know, we have a really great advantage for finding companies. In fact, in the last 15 months if you're not based here or an olympic athlete you can't come to japan so that's been a great advantage but beyond that what we're looking for is the very best companies in the long-term view that means great industry outlooks strong competitive position really strong balance sheet 
good free cash flow. And there really aren't that many of those types of companies, but that's what we're looking for. E-commerce and automation are two key areas of focus for the trust. Could you run through the investment opportunities for both of those and a uh, stock example for each? Yeah, definitely. So in e-commerce, Japan is following the same path as the rest of the world, but is starting from a much earlier stage. So still, even after the pandemic, only around 10% of shopping is done online in Japan. We don't think there's anything special or different about this country. And it will end up being uh, going the same way as everywhere else, like the UK. So an example of a company we own would be one called Zozo. That is the largest online clothing company in Japan. It's similar to ASOS in the UK or Zalando in Europe. Um, But it's because we're coming from such an early stage here that we have this very long growth runway, which means these companies are, are really exciting. On automation, Um, Japan has the preeminent companies in robotics. And the big picture here is that wages are rising in China, the workshop of the world. They're also rising in the US. Companies are concerned about having all their production concentrated in one country like China. They might be worried about the pandemic or they might be worried about the trade war. But when they move production, the number one thing they are going to do is automate those factories. So we expect to see more automation in China itself, but also as production moves around the world, those factories will also automate. And a company like Kiens, which is our biggest position and has been now for coming up to 10 years, is the number one company in uh, sensors used in factory automation lines. It makes operating margins of over 50% and has a very long growth runway. Um, as many different industries automate, not just cars, but also things like pharmaceuticals and food. As part of your investment process, do you take into any consideration at all a wider macroeconomic backdrop, such as deflation, which the country has been struggling with for more than two decades now? There are certain things in Japan which have been happening for a long time, like deflation, or some things that we're very confident will continue to happen in Japan, like the aging population. In fact, the Japanese population has already started to fall. Now, the first thing to say about that is there is no link between population growth and stock market performance. But secondly, we can find companies that really benefit from these trends, even if they're negative for many companies. As long as we can find a small number it's positive for, that's great. So to give you an example, The most recent company we added to the portfolio is that one called Spider Plus. It's a software company which has software for construction workers. Now in Japan, over a third of construction workers are aged over 55. And it's just not a job you can do into your 70s. It's a really physically tough job. And so we'd expect to see much more automation, use of software. And so it's a very strong following for a certain group of companies at any rate. I wanted to next move on to Japan's handling of of COVID-19. How has the Japanese stock market been impacted by coronavirus? And as someone who is based on the ground in Tokyo, what has Japan's experience of COVID-19 been like? Well, first of all, I think, you know, if you look at the stock market or companies, one thing we saw in the rest of the world 
the UK, US, other parts of Asia, was companies stopped paying dividends or stopped doing buybacks because they were very worried about what was going on. But in Japan, 50% of companies, non-financial companies, are net cash. And so they didn't have to do that. And all companies basically continued paying dividends throughout last year, which is a really encouraging thing. And actually, improvements in balance sheet efficiency is one of the really major reasons to invest in Japan. Turning to the virus itself, it has been fascinating to be based here. Obviously, my family are based in the UK, so I can really contrast what's going on. Now, Japan has doubled the population of the UK, but COVID deaths are just a fraction, a tiny fraction of what has unfortunately happened back in the United Kingdom. So it's been a relatively good place to be uh, in the last year. One thing to say, though, is that the vaccination rate here has been quite slow, certainly if I contrast it, what's going on in the United Kingdom. It is catching up. We're currently doing over 1.2 million vaccine doses a day here. But, you know, it's a much, much lower rate than we see in other developed markets. And that could be a concern if we start to see some of the, um, for example, the Delta variant spread in this country. You mentioned it's been a a relatively good place to be in terms of um, COVID-19, in terms of Japan's experience of the crisis. But in terms of the stock market, the Japanese stock market has not performed as well as other developed markets so far this year. What's the reason behind this? Although we didn't really have lockdown here, we have had some certain measures to curtail what you can do. Um, so, for example, restaurants might shut. You can go to a restaurant, but it shuts at like 8 o'clock, for example. Um, and I think the difference in forms all comes down to what I said about the vaccine. So, in the UK now, 85% of people have received one dose, whereas it's only 25% in Japan. Now, I'm absolutely sure we're going in the same direction. So, you know, I don't have any concern that Japan is going to fully open up and we will get it with a vaccine. So, Really, I see it as an opportunity that Japan has lagged. And one of the really big things from the coronavirus crisis has been this acceleration of trends. That's things like, you know, cashless payments. People didn't want to handle cash and cash payments in Japan at 80, 880% of transactions. And suddenly you start to see cashless take off. E-commerce, you start to see it take off. Telemedicine's taking off. Um, all of these things accelerating things which are already happening. And that's, you know, really exciting. Um, I think that basically you are looking at the, towards the end of a movie, say, for example, in the UK, but still quite early on here. And that's a really great advantage. So I think it comes down to the vaccine rate. But I think the trends that have been put, you know, cemented by the pandemic are, are really encouraging. And so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not disheartened by the performance of Japan. I just see it as an opportunity. We have the uh, Olympics coming up in Tokyo. Will this in any way have any bearing on Japan's stock market or its appeal with investors? I mean, could there be a potential Olympics bounce that um, I think has happened in the past to, uh, to other regions? Well, I think, you know, for the way we invest, the Olympics has never really featured at all because it's just a, a one-off event. And we're looking for companies with long-term, I mean, five to ten-year duration in terms of what they're doing. In terms of the Olympics itself, although the number of spectators is seriously curtailed, you know, all of the investment has already taken place. You know, it might 
increased Japan's profile thanks to these kind of podcasts where people want to talk about Japan at the moment. But, um, you know, we really don't attach too much importance to it. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I'm happy that people look at Japan and hopefully they'll look at some of the great companies we have here. But I don't think that it's a sufficient catalyst on its own. I'd be much more keen for people to look at the nascent trends we have here and the big improvements in corporate governance. And finally, Nicholas, do you have skin in the game? Do you personally invest in the trust that you manage? Yes, absolutely, I do. To add to that, I'd say one of the great things about being here is that me and my family are constantly trying out the products of the companies that we invest in, which is obviously much easier for us to do. So, you know, my poor wife, I forced her to set up a shop uh, using an online Japanese equivalent of Shopify called Base, uh, which we own. See if it really did take just two hours and get all the payment solutions in place. And it did. So, uh, you know, I'm really happy to be invested in the trust, but also I'm really happy that it's, you know, we can get that firsthand experience of, you know, seeing what's going on here, trying out these companies' prom, pro, uh, products, you know, and, and seeing is believing. part of the podcast and joined by Liberty Godfrey for the Fund Spotlight feature. So Liberty, what have you picked for this episode? Janice Henderson UK Responsible Income Fund, which is a member of Interactive Investors Ace 40 list and aims to provide an income with the potential for capital growth over the long term. It's benchmarked against the FTSE All Share Index and sits within the Investment Association's UK equity income sector. It has assets of just over £300 million and has been managed by the highly experienced Andrew Jones since the end of 2011, as well as further support from the well-resourced wider team at Janice Henderson. It has a diverse portfolio of 66 holdings made up primarily of UK companies of any size. However, the fund is mainly made up of large cap companies. It avoids investing in companies that the manager considers to have a negative impact on the development of a sustainable global economy. So how does the fund invest and could you run through some more details on the ethical process? Yeah, so Jones has a strong valuation discipline to assess stocks on cash flow, dividend growth and yield, emphasised within their environmental, social and governance criteria. The manager excludes stocks following the avoidance criteria, which covers issues on the environmental side, such as fossil fuel, nuclear power and fur, as well as social issues such as alcohol, gambling and human rights. The fund also aims to have a carbon footprint significantly less than that of the FTSE All Share Index. And what areas is the fund currently favouring at the moment? So in terms of sector exposure, the fund is around a third exposed to financials. However, this will typically include financial services companies and insurers as opposed to banks, as well as large exposures to consumer discretionary, healthcare and utilities. Some of the largest holdings within the fund include AstraZeneca, a multinational pharmaceutical and biotechnology company that has recently been a key player in the fight against the COVID-19 virus through the development of a vaccine, as well as Schroders, a fund management firm, and National Grid, an energy company operating in the UK and the US. And finally, how does the fund stand out from the crowd? Well, the fund features on the ACE 40 as a UK equity income core recommendation. It also falls within the ACE Considers category, 
meaning the fund carefully considers a wide range of ESG issues and themes when balancing positive and negative factors. The fund has delivered strong performance over the longer and shorter term, proving to be relatively resilient over recent periods, as well as delivering a good historic yield of 3.6%. It's managed by a highly experienced manager and team, and the diversified exposure to UK stocks within a long-term, flexible and pragmatic investment process makes the fund capable of achieving outperformance in a variety of market conditions. This, along with the fund's extensive ethical process with strong governance and sustainability standards, as well as the low carbon emissions portfolio, allows investors to gain access to the UK market whilst being mindful of the environment. That's all for this episode. I hope that you've enjoyed listening. And if that is the case, then please do give us a like, tell your friends and subscribe. Of course, you can find lots more investment insights and ideas at ii.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.